Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. Very familiar passage, but uh, the, the message today is going to be really um, impactful, I believe. Uh, God has prepared a, a just a very um, appropriate message for all of us to hear through his faithful servant, uh, Pastor Mike. So we're looking forward to it again. This is God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Grass withers a flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. All right. I uh, wanted to just briefly introduce Pastor Mike. I think most of you know him. He, he's been here before, uh, I believe, maybe two years ago, was it? When I was on sabbatical, I asked him to come preach for, for you for multiple weeks. Also, I was happy to see he was interacting with a bunch of our members, you know, from previous, I guess, events. Uh, he encountered them, um, and, uh, you know, just he knows Charlie. He knows several of our staff members, so... It's good to see the interaction. Uh, Pastor Mike currently uh, serving at a church, a PCA church in D.C. called Grace D.C. Uh, that's his primary uh, work right now. But he's also, uh, not too long ago, took on the role of uh, U.S. directorship uh, um, at Rat, Radstock, sorry, Radstock Mission Organization, which he's going to um, describe more of uh, on the second half, at the second half of his uh, message. And so um, I, I, I like as a ministry for us to consider how we can, you know, leverage our resources because God has, you know, really blessed us over the past few years. And so we want to be faithful stewards of what we have and really uh, honor the Lord in supporting missionaries and missionary causes the best we can. So uh, that, that's my hope and prayer for all of us today. Okay, so let's, uh, let's warmly welcome Pastor Mike as he comes up. Good morning. 
Okay, good morning. Good. Um, it's good to be with you, and uh, it's good to be back, um, to be able to share uh, the word, but also my passion uh, in missions. And uh, so as Pastor Paul said, we're going to try to kill two birds with one stone. Um, I'm going to do a briefer version of this sermon, and then we'll get into sort of what is Radstock. And uh, I want to invite you all to listen in, but also to participate, uh, because God is not yet done uh, in doing his work uh, around the world, and the church still has an important part to play, okay? Let's pray together, and we'll dive in. God, we are grateful that you meet us every Sunday. You are indeed the king who is worthy of all of our praise, all our worship, all that we have and are, and yet you stoop low to be with us. You dwell in our mess, in our brokenness. You are familiar with our pain and struggle, and you lead us even in the valley of the shadow of death. And Lord, you are God Emmanuel, as we were reminded in the opening part of the service. Advent is not something that we celebrate in December only, but every Sunday you draw near to us. You come to us. It's your Advent. And so, Lord, we want to be mindful of that, and we want to respond in worship as we commit all that we are and have to you. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know the jingle? Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm would have us believe that they are our good neighbors. But I would beg to differ. When I think of a good neighbor who goes above and beyond the call of duty and puts himself in harm's way for the good of others, I think of my next-door neighbor, Ron. Not once, but twice, he put himself between a would-be thief and my children's bikes. I have four kids, 14, 12, 10, and 8. Uh, and, uh, you know, the funny thing about kids' age, they change every year. I don't understand why. Um, and so, you know, they like to move, out, uh, move about in the city, and so... A bike is one of their primary, um, you know, mode of transportations. And uh, the first time, Ron noticed a stranger walk in my backyard and uh, make away with something, and then the same gentleman came back. And this time, Ron went out and confronted the man tactfully uh, with a question, can I help you? And the gentleman said, well, I'm here actually to help the owner with a project around the corner, and he asked me to grab some tools for him. Ron, knowing fully well that that was a lie, said to him, look, if you need tools, you can borrow them from me. I'm not comfortable with you being in this house when I know the parks are away. And so he went and got his tools, and by the time he came back, the gentleman was gone. Second time, Ron was working in his office that faces the back alley, and he noticed a group of teenagers walking up and down the back alley, eventually jumping over my fence, grabbing a bunch of bikes, tossing them over fence, and taking off. Ron, being a good neighbor, decided that he would chase these thieves on foot. So he just ran out, started running after these kids, screaming things that I cannot repeat in the church, Right? But he scared them enough, so they abandoned the bikes and took off. Like a good neighbor, Ron is there. Ron won the unofficial Neighbor of the Year Award 
And the stories of his sacrifice and heroism spread like wildfire. It was the main topic at every dinner party. And you don't have to be a Christian to appreciate Ron's courage, his tact, and even his speed. There's something good and right about neighboring well. And we all know that. Jesus knew that. He knew that in order for us, the church, to beautifully and in compelling ways live out the gospel, we need to love God and neighbor well. That's why he said, love is the final apologetic. It's by your love for one another and the world that they will know that I have sent you. Here in today's passage that was just read to us, Jesus shows us how to be good neighbors. But before you start going down the checklist of all the things that you need to do in order to love others well, let me say that this whole endeavor This whole enterprise of loving others well begins by learning his love for you. You see, if you don't let his love shape you and your love for the world, you cannot love the world. As David Brooks, one of my favorite authors, once said, a lot of what God calls us to do is like a muscle that fatigues very easily. You can't go very far before you realize you don't have the wisdom or the resource to obey. And loving others is one of those things. Yes, God certainly calls us to love others well. And it's a command we need to take seriously. But if we start with, okay, I will love others well, then you missed everything. It must begin by resting well in his love for you. So let's take a look at this passage together. And again, I'm going to go through it rather quickly because we have another thing to cover. And if you're used to a two, three-point sermon, I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to let the pivot points in the story serve as our main points. And so today you have four points, okay? Let's listen in on the conversation. First, there is the most important question. The title lawyer is a bit of a misnomer. A lawyer back in Jesus' time is more like today's seminary professor, an expert in the Old Testament law, than your typical D.C. lawyer. The text says he stood up to test Jesus with a question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's a lot that could be said here, but it really boils down to this. The lawyer wants to see if Jesus is properly credentialed for this work. And he picked a very good question, one that all of us at one point have wrestled with. This question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, is not only the foundation of every major religions in the world, but functionally, it's what's drives us sometimes too as Christians. We know that salvation is by grace through faith, yet so often when we do, when we take stock of our lives, it's all about what have I done and what have I not done. And we feel like we need to measure up to clear the bar in order for us to come to church, to be able to pray and even pray expectantly. Functionally, we all believe in salvation by works. But God wants to free you from that. He invites you to come and learn of his love. Love that is too amazing to believe. Grace that really is grace in the fullest sense. Interestingly, the lawyer's question comes on the heels of Jesus' words in verse 21, where he says these words, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, Because you have hidden these things, the mystery of his identity and his work, 
You have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this reason, uh, for this is what you were pleased to do. I think it would do us well as a church to remember that we're not saved by works and we're not saved by knowledge either. In our Reformed PCA tradition, we can lean this way sometimes. And it's all about what we know. It's important to know, trust me. We need to know and know well. But that's not going to save you. It's not going to earn you a place in the kingdom. And it's not the reason why he will hear your prayers and listen. We have a high priest who prays for us, and we have a Savior who has given his life. He went to hell and back for you. And he extends kindness so that we can come and enjoy our relationship with Father in the best sense. Second, the impossible demand of the law. I love this because Jesus plays along. He plays along and answers a question with a few questions of his own. What is written in the law and how do you read it? The lawyer quotes the Shema, the Jewish confession of faith, if you will, from Deuteronomy 6.5, where Moses wrote, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he is right. If the lawyer loved God and neighbor as stipulated here in this verse, then he could somehow earn a place in the kingdom. But Jesus knows he can't. Jesus knows that this lawyer falls very short of this standard. And you can almost picture it, can't you? The lawyer is mentally keeping score, a score, and he knows that he's doing better than most. And so he feels pretty confident about his standing. So Jesus replies, well, that's the right answer. And then here's the kicker. Now do this and you will live. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now do this. Jesus answers that question with a call to action, one that is impossible for any one of us. But the lawyer doesn't know that yet. In other words, what, in other words do you really want to know what you must do to be saved? You must meet the impossible demand of the law. You just have to be perfect. That's all. You see, God does not grade us on a curve. And just because you have a better grade than the person sitting next to you doesn't mean you qualify for the kingdom at all. No. Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you think you're pretty much like right there and you need Jesus to top you off in that last 5% so that you can get into the kingdom, I got news for you. We're all dead in sin and trespass. We're nowhere close. We didn't just miss the mark. We totally blew it. And that's why we have a Savior who saves us abundantly. And you will know just how far you fall from his standard when you actually take his words seriously. When you try to love God with everything that you have and you are, and when you try to love people around you as you love yourself, that's when you'll realize just how far you fall from that glory. Um, 
I don't know if you have a younger, bigger brother, but I have a younger, bigger brother, uh, younger, but 6'2". Uh, and um, he was really good at sports. He uh, was his, the volleyball, uh, not volleyball, <laughs> varsity captain, uh, was uh, given um, scholarships from Division II schools to come play basketball. But, uh, you know, me being the older brother, young, like, you know, I needed to impose my physical prowess, if you will, on this guy so he doesn't go around bragging or misunderstanding his place in the family. So we used to play basketball quite a bit. And uh, so I thought I was pretty good growing up. Uh, so when my uh, two boys, who were then eight and six, invited me to come and play basketball with the neighborhood kids, I thought, why not? This is an opportunity for me to showcase Jordan, Shaq, Bird, and Magic all combined into one. I'm like, let's do this. So I, I gear up, I go out in the back alley, and we start playing. And sure enough, for the first five minutes, I looked magical out there. Can I say that? Can a pastor really brag about his basketball skills? <laughs> I looked amazing. I made all my shots. I got to the rim like they were just standing around watching me in awe. I probably blocked most of their shots, and if not, I rebounded it. We were killing them. That's when I began to feel my age. You think you're young until you actually try what young people do and you realize you're not young. Now, for those of you who are like, well, how old are you exactly? I'm 47, so I'm not exactly a spring chicken. And so <laughs> after five minutes of playing basketball, I was dying. I, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I was so out of shape that back of my teeth hurt. I mean, that's when you know you're not in good health. And so I call time out and lean over to my six-year-old son, my teammate, and I'm like, Daniel, daddy's going to die, man. <laughs> daddy's going to die. I don't know what we're going to do. And my eight-year-old and his, like, three other guys, that, that was the other team, they figured out what I was trying to do. So my eight-year-old son, James, is like, dad, time out is over. We got to play again. He's very competitive, by the way, just like his mom. Um, and so we... We start playing again, and after a couple of minutes, I couldn't do it anymore. I was literally on the verge of collapsing. And that's when I call a timeout. I'm like, guys, I think it's uh, halftime. Let's go get some Gatorade. And uh, to be honest, that game never ended. We're still on our halftime break. You never know how out of shape you are until you actually do some of these things. You know what I mean? Like, in your mind, you think you're in shape, and then you try. I share this with you because when it comes to living up to God's standard, some of us, we think we're pretty good, that we need Jesus for that last 5%. I, I got to 95, Jesus. I, I'm pretty good here. Yeah, I could use a little help. No. When you actually take the law seriously, and you should, you will realize that you fall very far from the glory of God. Why does Jesus, um, you know, ask or tell this lawyer, do this and you will live? Is it to prove a point? I don't think so. Is it to humiliate him in front of others? I don't think so. I believe it's to extend mercy. And Jesus does this sometimes. Remember the story of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? 
She had several failed marriages, and that's why she came to draw water at noon, at the hottest part of the day, to avoid the gossip column, because she is the gossip column. And Jesus meets her, engages her in the conversation, but before he extends mercy to her, he says to her, go, call your husband. You see, Jesus exposes her idolatry of love to show her God's unconditional love for her. And to the rich young ruler who loved his wealth, Jesus said, go sell everything and then follow me. And he does this because he wants to extend mercy to this man who is bowing down before the idol of wealth. He exposes the hidden things. Not so that you can overcome them yourself. He knows we can't. On our own, we will continue to bow before these idols and pray, as Jeremiah says, for broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Jesus knows this. But he goes there so that as we come face to face with the hidden things, the secret things that lie way deep in our hearts, that we will understand our need for a Savior. You see, if you're not convicted of sin, then you don't need a Savior. You are your Savior. And that's why grace is amazing only to those who see the depth of their own sin. Let me ask you, is grace amazing to you? If not, it's not that grace is not amazing. It's that you don't really know who you are. Three, the futility of self-justification. The lawyer is not convinced, not yet at least. Instead of acknowledging his need for mercy, he tries to justify himself. And what is self-justification? It's basically proving our righteousness to God, to somehow say, you see, God, based on these good things that I have done, you need to let me in. I've earned a, ta- a seat at your table for sure. Look, look how good I am. I went to church. I gave. I serve. I deserve something. And this is how all the religions in the world operate. It's some form of self-justification. Do enough good things so that you can offer your self-righteousness to God, and then somehow you will merit salvation. But Christianity says, no, you can't do that. Salvation is a gift given by grace, received by faith from a Savior who has met all the impossible demands of the law. And here the lawyer asks a clarifying question. Jesus, could you be a little more specific? Who exactly is my neighbor? What a relevant question today. We live in a strange world, don't we? A world that is divided by politics and many other things. And someone, I think, wisely discerned that with the decay of institutions, we need a place now to belong, and we have found solace in our tribes. Back a generation or two ago, it was the government, the church, some definition of community that sort of held the fabric of society together. It was these institutions that gave us a place, a shared narrative, and really defined us as a people. But with that no longer being in play 
and us not being able to carve out a narrative for ourselves, we've now turned to tribes. And there are a lot of those, aren't there? You have your political camp that you belong to. You have your cultural gap that you belong. I mean, just everywhere. It's just one tribe after another. And we hold on to these things and their stories because they define who we are. The, the lawyer wants to know, who is my neighbor? Because if you say, Jesus, that the fellow Jew is your neighbor, then I got this. I don't need you. I don't need grace. I can actually earn salvation by loving a fellow Jew, and I can do that pretty darn well. You see, Jesus knowing very well what's on the lawyer's heart is now going to get there in a little bit. But let me just say to all of you, he calls you to love those in your tribes. Yes, he does. You must love them as you love yourself. But he also calls you to love those who are not in your tribes as you love yourself. You see, when we strip people of the glory that is the image of God and tack on any label, left, progressive, conservative, trumper, whatever the label we stick on them, now all of a sudden we have all the justification to divide and demonize. Why? Because they're no longer made in the image of God. They're just the crazy left, crazy right, insufferable, that. And Jesus says, no, that's not how you as a church must function. If we really understand what Jesus is telling us in this parable, and if we really understand the totality of the gospel, that God came into our mess, into our brokenness, and therefore he is no longer a stranger to pain and suffering, and he loved us at great cost to himself and then caused us to love as he loved us, then we must humbly lean into difficult people and situation and love them well. I pastor a church in Washington, D.C. where politics is the name of the game. I have many people who work on the Hill and the White House and Pentagon and so on, and when we did faith and politics, many of them came to me and even wrote emails saying, please don't do this. Please do not talk about politics. Because there is no way we can discuss these things in our small groups. Do you know that there are people from both sides of the aisle uh, on certain issues and issues more broadly in one small group or if not more? I have people who are chief of staffs for progressives, director of communications for the conservative senators, people who are parts of think tanks that shape policies and other things, and they all strongly feel a certain way about politics. And I said to them, look, if we can't get this right as a church, if our congregation is not a safe place where people with different political philosophies can come together and worship Jesus, then there is no hope in this world. 
We must be a light. We must offer a better hope than our philosophical and political commitments. If that is what's going to define us, then we might as well quit and stop being a church. In fact, Apostle Paul in Ephesians says, Christ in his death and resurrection has demolished basically the wall that divides Jews and Gentiles. And if these two people groups can get together to worship Christ, to hold on to the promise that one day this Savior will return to make all things new, then we certainly can do it as a church. It's not about being right. It's about being humble. Going to the low place, as, if, as Philippians chapter 2 says. Becoming a servant. Yes, even to those over there. Not just to the people you like. Not just to the people that vote like you, think like you, cheer like you. No, we must love. And this is really hard. I understand. But this is what God calls us to. And this is what he equips us for. So Jesus answers the question, who is my neighbor, with a parable. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This journey from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 17 miles long. And it is a valley filled with cliffs on both sides, making it a perfect place to rob people. In fact, mugging was so common that this path used to be called the path of blood. This man, the text says, was stripped of his clothes. In modern day, I guess, vernacular, that simply means that his driver's license and passport were taken away. And he is somewhat ethnically ambiguous, and so people couldn't tell whether he was a Jew or not. A priest happens to be the first person on the crime scene, but for various not-so-good reasons, passes by on the other side. And notice the trajectory. He's not going from Jericho to Jerusalem, where he must perform his priestly duties and therefore needs to keep himself ceremonially clean, but he's actually going from Jerusalem to Jericho, where he just finished his priestly duties and therefore can afford to get messy and ceremonially unclean. He says, nah, don't want to risk it. It's too inconvenient. Who knows what I'm getting myself into? Gone. Then a Levite comes along and, just like the priest, passed by on the other side of the road. At this point of the parable, the lawyer figured it out. He's like, Jesus, you're right. You are so right. It's not the priest. And those Levites, eh, no. They, I mean, they got that whole tradition and lineage, but really, do they, do they know and love you like we do? You're right, Jesus. You're so right. Tell them how the story ends. Tell them about us Pharisees, the, the gatekeepers, if you will, and how much we love God and love neighbor well. Go ahead. Tell them the story. Talk about a plot twist. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. The Samaritan is the hero of this story. And you can see the lawyer just fuming, right? It's like the old cartoons where the color red just 
comes up from the leg up. Like he's just like angry. Because with every description, every act of kindness that this Samaritan, an enemy, is performing, the lawyer is like, I can't believe you turned on us. It's the Samaritan who risked his life. Look, to stop in the valley of the blood meant you too could be mugged. Who knows who's hiding out there? He risked his life to save a man who was possibly politically and otherwise the other. It was a Samaritan who cleared out his schedule for the day, and that means something to us, right, here in D.C. metro area, people who are tethered to our calendars. It was a Samaritan who got messy and covered the initial expenses and said, I'm going to come back and pay the rest. And when Jesus asked, which of these three men do you think was a neighbor to the man, the lawyer could not even utter the words, the Samaritan. He was so angry because the Jews hated the Samaritans. They were the people who compromised their faith and intermarried with basically pagans. Now, the Bible is not saying you can't marry people from other race. It's saying that you can't marry people from other faith. And that's why this Jewish man, along with every faithful Jew, despised the Samaritan and considered them to be worse than Gentiles, even worse than dogs. And that's why, instead of saying, the Samaritan, he answers, the one who had mercy on him. The lawyer wanted to justify himself, to offer his righteousness to God, to prove that he actually loved God and neighbor well. But do you see what Jesus just did? Jesus just proved to the lawyer that he neither loves neighbor nor God. Why? Because the lawyer is angry. All the things that were deeply buried in his heart are now at the surface. Anger, bitterness, racism, discrimination, all that to the surface. And Jesus proved to this man that he does not love his neighbor. But not only that, this lawyer, he is angry at Jesus for telling this story. And so the lawyer is angry at God and his neighbor. And Jesus, in so many words, is saying, look, you think you can earn a place in the kingdom of God by loving God and others well, but look at your heart. Look at the very things that have surfaced, the very emotions that are overwhelming you. It is not love. It is everything but love. You need a savior. Because you can't save yourself. Let's move on to our final point. God's gracious provision. The conversation could be summarized this way. What must I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus? Well, what does the law say? Love God and neighbor well. Correct. Do this and you will live. Well, can you be a little more specific? Who exactly is my neighbor? And Jesus says, you missed the whole point. I am your good neighbor. 
I've came, I have come down for you. Laid aside heavenly glory, took on human flesh, became a bondservant to live the life that you can't live, to suffer unjustly, to die a horrific death as a man who is cursed outside of the city limits, to face hell and to drink the cup of wrath down to the very last drop so that I can love you. You see, the lawyer really thought that by doing more and trying harder, that he could earn, he could merit God's salvation. But the law and tradition represented by the priest and the Levite cannot save. They are but taskmasters, and their job is to point us to a Savior who can save. And I love this about Jesus. He is pretty sharp. The more I study the Bible, the more I read about the Gospels, Jesus is a pretty cool dude. Can I say that? Not only that, but he is sharp. Like some great authors, Jesus writes himself as a character in this story. Notice that he does not identify himself as a king or even a Pharisee or even a fellow Jew. He identifies himself as a Samaritan, one that is rejected and despised by the Jews. And in so many ways, Jesus points us to the rest of his ministry, his suffering, his death, but also his resurrection. And he is saying to the Pharisee and to all of us that I have neighbored well, that I came down to love you in this way. And it would do us well to rest in this love that he has for us and let his love shape us, to shape our hearts, to let it be our fuel and courage to love those who are different from us as he has loved us. So let me ask you this morning, has God put someone in your life that is difficult to love? He certainly has in my life. And it pains me to think about them because I get angry, I get upset, I get hurt. There's some trauma associated with it. Past hurts, not reconciled. And I feel like I'm reopening that wound every time I think about them or pray for them. But that's exactly what he calls you and I to do, to enter into that difficult space, to wade deep into the emotional and psychological mess. You know why? Because he meets us there. He becomes more beautiful, more powerful, the gospel more compelling in those moments of hardship and difficulty. Truth gives light, and it heals, it restores, and he invites us to go to those difficult places, to the valley of the shadow of death, if you will, so that there we may encounter our great Savior and lean into these people and circumstances that are difficult 
so that we can love as he has loved us. Let me pray for us, and we'll transition to the next part. God, we're thankful for your great love for us. Jesus, thank you for loving us well. Thank you for going to hell and back so that you could say our name, to bring us from darkness to light, from death to life, and to make us your beloved, your own. Lord, teach us to pause and let these words go deep into our hearts. Press this truth deeper still, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. Um, I realized that when we love neighbors here, it's called a Christian. But when we go somewhere else, um, you know, London, Bangkok, wherever you go, and you love neighbor well, then you're called a missionary. I, think, I thought that was really cool. That being a missionary is not any different than what you do here. It's just in a different place. You take everything you know about Jesus and his command to be like him and love and seek the good of the city and all that stuff. And when you do it somewhere else, then you're a missionary. And I hope that that's your ethos, that that's your mindset, that you haven't somehow given yourself a free pass because you're not over there. You're here, and place matters. And the command to love God and neighbor well is in play. And so in that sense, everyone is a missionary. And that's not some platitude that we toss around. I hope not. I hope it really shapes your identity, your narrative, that you're here to do more than just pursue the American dream. And uh, yeah, I'm going to share a little bit about my involvement with Radstock. This is our tagline. It's Churches Connected for Global Missions. So we're not uh, your traditional mission agency, but we're a network where churches are connected. We come together for a common purpose. And that could be, hey, we all know this one guy serving in Mongolia. Let's help this guy out together because we want to see him thrive and the gospel, like, expand in Mongolia, right, through this guy. It could be that. Or it could be, hey, we share passion for Kosovo. Like, we don't know too many gospel-preaching churches. So since we sort of care about Kosovo, let's come together and let's, like, pray and let's see churches planted and so on and so forth. So we're not a traditional uh, mission agency, but we're a network of like-minded churches coming together to identify a person or project or region to say, we're going to pour into this. So does that mean, you know, that we can't process people who want to be missionaries with us? No. We do offer all the, the gamut, if you will, from short-term, summer-term, two-year, lifelong. We have all of that, but we are at the heart a network of churches uh, that are banded together. <clears throat> Next slide, please. Next slide. Okay, so there it is. Um, we have uh, presence in many places uh, throughout the world. I think we have about 130 to 150 member churches who not only support us, we have friends of Radstock, but when I say member churches, they're the ones who have said, hey, we want to be in an official relationship with you. So we don't want to just date you, but we want to marry you. So go ahead and sign us up. 
And uh, we want to learn more about you, hear from you, and participate in whatever ways that we can. And so we have, uh, you know, different initiatives like church planting in Cambodia. Uh, We also have uh, prayer efforts uh, going on in Albania. Uh, A lot of good things happening in Macedonia area. And, uh, yeah, I'll wait for the others. Okay, next. You might be wondering, what is Radstock? Like, where did you get that name? Because it's really not helpful, and I agree. When I first heard, I was like, Radstock? Like, you need to change that name. Like, do something cool, hip, modern. Like, none of us can relate to Radstock. And then I was schooled. Lord Radstock was a British aristocrat back in 1800s. He came to know the Lord later in his life, and upon conversion, he sold everything he had and went to Russia uh, to be a missionary there. Apparently, Russians have a long memory. They don't forget things easily, and they're not impressed by the latest thing. And so many churches in Russia continue to celebrate Lord Radstock and his good work that happened over 150-some years ago, and some have devoted to researching and writing a book entitled Lord Radstock and the Russian Awakening. And so fast forward to 1980s, a bunch of Brits, crazy guys, uh, crazy for the Lord, decided to smuggle Bibles into what was then the Soviet Union. Some of us are old enough, or older, I should say, to to remember that. And uh, they thought, hey, you know, why don't we name ourselves Radstock? Because if we name ourselves like the London Bible Society, done. We're going to get kicked out, arrested. But Radstock, you know, no one's going to know what we're doing. So let's name ourselves that. And that's how the name started, and it kind of stuck. And uh, once, uh, you know, Soviet Union collapsed, the guys that were smuggling Bibles uh, to Soviet Union uh, connected with some of the guys in Germany, and uh, they started praying together about what the Lord might have for them in basically Radstock 2.0. And after much prayer and discussion, they decided to form a mission agency uh, that's going to focus on church planting in difficult places. I'll say more on that later. Next, some of you uh, have asked, like, how did I get involved? So this is not my mission agency. It's been around since uh, the late 80s, and uh, I've recently become the U.S. director. And... um, I'll just say very briefly that my wife and I, we've always had a heart for missions. My wife, before marrying me, wanted to become a missionary to India to work with the poor, and uh, she got stuck with me. So she's here in Washington, D.C. now. And uh, we have always said, hey, wouldn't it be great if we retire from local church ministry kind of early and uh, went on the mission field with the hopes of encouraging younger missionaries? You know that the number one challenge for younger missionaries is loneliness. It's not even persecution. It's loneliness. And a lot of these guys, they bow out because they can't overcome it. Wouldn't it be great if we could invite these guys to our home, cook them a meal, encourage them, pray with them, and squeeze out three to five more years and get them over that initial hump? Perhaps if we could encourage them in that way, they might stay for the rest of their life. What good would that do for the kingdom? Wow. Maybe. And so when this opportunity came, we prayed all but two minutes and said, sign us up. So we became operations manager. We split the work, and from there, they said, hey, we see gifts in you. Would you like to become the U.S. director and sort of interface with churches, do, you know, engagement, 
development, so on and so forth. And that's how I got involved, okay? Uh, for the four things I love about Radstock, people ask, how is this any different from other mission agencies? Well, you already know one, which is not up here, and that is we're not a mission agency. We're a network of churches. And that helps us to be very distinct, and we have unique strengths as a result of that. The first thing that I really love about Radstock is the sustainability. Because we are a network and not a sending agency, all the local churches in different parts of the world are led by local leaders. So all the pastors in Albania, leading Albanian churches, church planting and development, leadership development, are all Albanian pastors. Okay? And so I think this is a healthy model. I mean, think about it. I was having a conversation with... Uh, you know, one of those, like, think tank guys from Southern Baptist, uh, you know, denomination. He's very involved in, like, the Gospel Coalition, Together for the Gospel, and so on and so forth. And uh, we were talking about missions, and he basically said to me, yeah, we're rethinking the whole mission thing right now because we're not getting, you know, basically what we want out of all the resources we're investing. And I asked him, what do you mean? He's like, well, think about it. For a family of four, they need $100,000 a year like, to actually go. And over the span of 10 years, that's a million dollars. But here's the problem. In the first five years, you know what they're doing? They're learning language, which is not bad. They need to, but they're not really doing mission work. That's three years. And in the span of the 10 years, they come back two years on home assignments to do fundraising. In other words, five out of the 10 years... $500,000 out of the million is not going to the mission field. It's actually for other things. Yeah, we're rethinking this whole mission thing because we don't think it's sustainable. In that sense, I think we are the healthiest organization because many mission agencies, their dream is to one day pass the leadership baton to local leaders, and it's become a pipe dream, whereas us, because of our network, we're all led by local pastors who know the world, the language, the culture, and basically their parents grew up in the village nearby. And so they can tap into a depth of relational wealth. And they're able to do a lot of good work uh, in different places. Next is our commitment to cross-cultural engagement. Now, when you think about, uh, you know, training, you often think someone from America, Ph.D., a mega church pastor going to different parts of the world, doing a week-long seminar and preaching there uh, on the, uh, you know, at the church on Sundays. And we still need that. I, I think God is not yet done with the American church. But we also believe that the missionaries out there have a lot to give to us. And so we created this, what I think is a robust interface, where we can dialogue and learn from each other. This is Pastor Ogi, Mongolian planted about 30 churches in the capital and also in the Gobi Desert. He is currently doing his sabbatical in Liverpool, England. And that was an intentional move. He's there to get theological training because they don't have seminaries in Mongolia. But at the same time, he is helping our partner churches in England with things like evangelism, discipleship, and church planting because, quite frankly, Churches in Europe are not very good at that right now. So we learn from each other, provide fresh perspectives, and so on. Next, 
Okay, we're all about church planting. If you said to me after this, you know, gathering, hey, Pastor Mike, um, I have a heart for North Korea. I want to start like an internet cafe, and I want to share the gospel with, you know, whoever shows up. I would say, great, praise God for that. But that's not us. We're committed to church planting, not in impossible places, but in difficult places, because at the end of the day, when people come to Christ, they need the local church. They need the preaching and teaching of the word. They need encouragement and fellowship in the body of Christ. They need to be discipled so that they can then go as evangelists and church planters at some point. And that happens best in the context of a local church. And so we are committed to church planting and churches being at the very heart, very center of the mission effort. Next. The last thing here, the fourth reason I love Ratsock is that we are very poor. And you might be wondering, how is that a strength? Well, it is, because our mission philosophy is let's just give everything away. If at the end of our fiscal year we got anything in the balance, then we're going to give. Many years we have ended the fiscal year with like negative $11. It's like, praise God. We prayed, God provided, and we gave. Praise God. And uh, like, I think I have it here. We give, so the 5 to 10%, let me put this in perspective. And please don't hear me as me picking on MTW. I'm a PCA guy. It's my, you know, it's my denomination. You know, Mission to the World is the mission agency of uh, MTW, and they'll tax you between like 25 to 40 percent, okay, overhead costs, retirement, so on and so forth, right? Insurance, everything else. Uh, we have decided to tax our people as little as possible, because again, because of our network of churches. And guys like Ogi that you saw earlier, if there's a ministry need, how is he going to fund it when he's getting, like, horse milk as offering? Like, so we said, you know what, we're going to just put as much money to the front lines as we can. And so we came up with the 5 to 10%, and this is as minimum as, I mean, that's the bare minimum we need in order to pay our accountant, overhead costs, the internet, you know, this and that and that and that. So 5% for every dollar you give to an individual and 10% for every project that you give to, whether it's a church plant or whatever, whatever. And we are intentional about this uh, because we do believe that in order for our network model to continue, these guys in the front lines, they need money. Um, someone from the first service came up to me afterwards and they're like, yeah, I checked you guys on the uh, website last night and I wasn't even sure if I, if I was at the right site and I, to be honest, like, I get really embarrassed when people are like, do you have a website? I'm like, like, it is so outdated. It is like, I'm like, mm, just, go to, just go to Facebook. <laughs> like, we're more present there. I, I want to, like, redirect traffic so they don't go to our website. But it is so us. We're so outdated. We're so poor. There's nothing shiny, but we don't care. It's like, you get the information you want, and let's just do mission work, Okay. If you got a problem with our website, sorry, okay? All right, next. Um, how can you partner with us? Please pray. Um, please, please pray for us and with us. I don't just say this lightly, but I really believe that prayer is what moves the heart of God who then moves the world. I really believe that. Without prayer, we cannot do anything. So please pray for us. Learn about us, different ways that you can get plugged in. 
Uh, to all our member churches and friends of Ratstock, we have newsletters that go out monthly, and uh, it's going to cover different, you know, things that are going on in our network. And we have vision trips, summer trips, you know, all that stuff. And uh, if you ever want to go to places like Albania, uh, Iceland, Ireland, London, I'm trying to highlight some of the nicer places because you're not going to want to go to some of the other Yeah, the Gobi Desert in Mongolia where you're going to be sleeping on flea-infested blankets. Come join me. Uh, I, I can't imagine you all lining up to sign up for that. Um, we have those opportunities. And every year we have a conference called the Roundtable. And in 2022, it's going to be held in Ireland. And uh, if you're interested in learning more about us and meeting people, especially from that part of the world, this will be a great opportunity for you to come. And, you know, on your way back home, stop by London, check out our churches, Big Ben, Westminster, and all the other wonderful things that London has to offer. Okay? Next. Is, is that it? Okay. How can you give? Um, I just want to highlight uh, these two things real quickly. Um, we have what's called the Barnabas House, and it's a safe house for uh, Christians that are fleeing persecution. Um, and uh, we are trying to rent homes that are somewhat furnished. If you looked at these homes, you would think like, man, my shack is in better condition than some of these homes. And you are right. Um, but we're trying to house some of the Afghanistan uh, refugees, uh, in particular Christians who are fleeing not only because of geopolitical reasons, but because of their faith. And uh, we not only provide them space, food, but also discipleship in their time with us. And then we're trying to hire a Balkans director. And look, is the price tag on there? Can you see the price tag? You know how much it costs for this guy to do his mission work for a year and provide for his family? $14,500. That's, for some of you, a paycheck. This guy is for a whole year. That's why this thing works, right? It's, it's a network of churches. We don't have to raise a million dollars to hire someone like this who can then do his work for five, six years, okay? And so we're trying to raise funds uh, for him to sort of oversee and manage what's going on in the Balkans right now. I think that's it. Any questions? I'd be here afterwards. I would love to talk to you.